May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is a pleasure to be with you once again on the Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6, and there you will find our sermon text for this evening. We are continuing our little mini-series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. And as you know, we are referring to some of these churches as the one holy, chaotic, and apathetic church, which gives us a little bit more uh, of a realistic description of what these churches were like and what they were facing. The letter we will hear from Jesus tonight comes from Revelation 6, 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand as we hear this word from the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God reads, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. In my very first ministry in the church, an older man came up to me. He had been preaching a long time, and he said, I want to share a story with you. So listen closely to what I'm about to say. And this is the story he shared with me. He said, there's a story of a man who was a new minister in a small town who spent the first several days of his ministry making personal visits to each of the members of his church, inviting them to come to his first services at that church. The following Sunday, the church was all but empty. The Sunday after that, the church was all but empty. And this continued on for the next few Sundays until finally, in response, the new minister placed an ad in the local newspapers and he announced that since that church was dead, he planned to give it a decent Christian burial. The announcement said that a funeral for the church would be held the following Sunday afternoon and everyone in town was invited to attend. Well, as the new minister expected, a large crowd turned up for the funeral of the dead church. As people arrived, they noticed that there was a casket placed in front of the pulpit instead of a table. 
It was covered in flowers. The minister stood beside the casket and began to preach, not a sermon, but a eulogy. And then he opened the casket and invited everyone who had gathered for that funeral to pass by the open casket. He wanted them to pay their final respects to the dead church. Those who were curious came forward, and one by one they filed past the open casket, looking in, but then quickly turning away. For when they peeked inside and saw the remains of the dead church, what they saw was a mirror tilted at just the right angle, reflecting their faces back to them. Now you have the same response I did when he told me that. I thought, surely this can't be a true story. And of course, it's not a true story at all. It's a made-up story. It's the kind of stories that ministers make up to make themselves feel better about their ministries. So a little preacher humor to get us started as we look at the dead church in Sardis. The question people ask all the time about their congregations or congregations they visit is, is this church alive or dead? Is it healthy or sick? Is it awake or is it asleep? The question is answered from, or the question is asked from a range of perspectives. Ministers ask those questions, members ask those questions, and usually the answers to those questions vary. Now let me give you an inside look at the way ministers think about things. A minister will look at a church and wonder if it's dead or alive, usually based on whether the people agree with him or not. Do they adopt his vision? Are they on board with his mission for the church? Are they conforming to his image and likeness? And if they do so, he will say, this is a, a living church. But if they resist and reject, he will conclude that it must be a dead church. Members of churches do the same kinds of things. They think a church is dead when it doesn't look as active or feel as exciting as do all of the other churches around them in their area which their friends attend. And when they gather together for coffee and tea and they share stories, their members have more ex their friends have more exciting stories to tell about their churches and all the things their churches are doing which makes some members feel like, well, my church must be a dead church. But I want to say to you that both perspectives approach the question in the wrong way. They approach the question the way men often do. They simply judge by what they see, hear, and feel, but only God can judge by the heart. Is this congregation, Christ's Covenant Church, alive or dead? Are we awake or asleep? Are we healthy or sick? And I'm sure we each have an opinion about that. And I know that people outside of our church have opinions about that. But whatever the answer might be, I want to come back with a follow-up question. My follow-up question would be, by what standard? By what standard is a church alive or dead? Awake or asleep? If we dug deep into our hearts, we would have to confess, most of us would have to confess, that we imagine that in some sense, I am the standard, that you are the standard, the measuring stick. But what if every member 
of this church was, alive, was as alive and as awake as you are? What if every member of this church was as healthy as you are? Would this church be alive or dead? Would this church be awake or asleep? That's a legitimate question to ask. Well, thankfully, if we ask by what standard, we don't have to look at each other. I'm not the standard of whether a church is alive or dead. I'm not the standard by whether this congregation is awake or asleep, and neither are you. The only standard by which we measure life or death or truth or error or anything else is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures give us the only rule of faith and life, and it's by those same scriptures that we measure whether a church is alive or dead. Not by the culture, not by other churches, but by Christ alone. So Jesus can write a church and he can say to the church in Sardis what your pastor could never say to you. I would never be in the right to determine whether this congregation is alive or dead. No matter how much I think or feel that it's alive and awake, only Christ can tell us the truth about us. And that's what he does in Sardis. Jesus writes a letter to the church and he tells the church the truth about the church. So Jesus' word is what declares whether a church is alive or dead. And he does so whether we like it or not. I imagine that there are churches who, like Sardis, consider themselves to be quite alive and awake and alert in the world. And it's quite possible that Jesus could come to those churches and say what he said to the church in Sardis. On the other hand, I'm sure there are churches who oftentimes feel that they're not very alive or very much awake in the world, and yet Jesus might come to them and praise them for being so alert and so aware of who God is and what God is doing among them and in the world. In other words, again, we judge by what we see and hear and feel, but Jesus judges by the heart. Now, as we've done each week, I want to walk you through this letter, but you're going to notice something different. In most of these letters, Jesus comes to the church and he calls the church to consider who they are in light of who he is. And he does that in verse 1. That part doesn't change. In all of the other letters we've seen up to this point, Jesus immediately goes into commending the church, but not in this letter. In this letter, Jesus goes directly to confronting the church. And after he confronts the church with the truth of her sin, the reality of her sin, then he counsels the church to bring about necessary changes. And then, after counseling the church, you'll find Jesus commending some, not all, but some in the church. And then he ends the letter the way he ends all of them, by comforting the church. And that's what we're going to follow this evening as we make our way through this letter. Again, Jesus writes this or has an angel of the church get this message and bring it to the church at Sardis. And he introduces himself in this way. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
This is rooted and grounded in the vision that Jesus gave John on the island of Patmos when John was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. And part of that revelation of Jesus Christ included this imagery that Jesus is the one with the seven spirits holding the seven stars. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is the Christ. He has the perfect Spirit of God. He is the one anointed with wisdom and understanding and power and knowledge and insight. The seven stars in His hands are the churches. He has all the churches in His hand. And so He draws near to Sardis, and these are His bona fides. But he has every right to speak to this church the way he does because he is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the one who is anointed with the Spirit of God who sees into the heart of this congregation of his people. And so when he confronts the church at Sardis with their sins, know that he is speaking not just out of mere opinion, not just out of surface level judgment, but he knows this church from the inside out. He says in verse 1, I know your works. You have the name, the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Some of our English translations have the word reputation there, and that's perfectly fine, but I want you to see that the word, uh, the, the word name is actually used there, and that's important for later, so hold that thought. But you have a name for being alive, but you are dead. As I was thinking about it this week, I, I remember, as I drive around, I remembered all of these churches that I've seen who want to be known as alive. You never see a church anywhere that's like the church of the living dead. No one has that. That title on their sign. You always have new life and living way and pathway of life and abundant life and it's as if we're all trying to convince everyone else that we are alive. Well, regardless of what the sign says, the sign doesn't make you alive. What makes churches alive is the work of the Spirit of Christ within them. Now this church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive. I don't know where they got that. I don't know how they got the name of being alive, but that's how everyone saw them. I suspect it came from this. You notice in verse 2 as Jesus confronts the church that He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It is quite possible that people in their area, people in that community, at one time saw that church as being a kind of moving and shaking church. Maybe it generated a lot of attention. Maybe they did some things in Sardis to get the attention of their community and people said, man, that church is alive. Look how active they are. Look how busy they are. Look at all the stuff they're doing in our community. But Jesus says, I have found your works not complete in the sight of my God. It's possible that they started out doing some very good things but then just let them go. Maybe they had some great experiences, a great season of ministry, and then just decided to quit. And now they're going to live on the steam of their past experiences. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where people spend so much time looking back at what we used to do and all the great things we used to accomplish, but they're not talking about what they're doing right now, and they're not really talking about what they might do tomorrow in the name of the Lord. 
So they're kind of riding this, this crest, this wave of their past ministry, their past service to God. They have a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says they are dead. Those must be painful words. We're not members of the church in Sardis. Uh, it's a sister congregation of ours from years ago. We're far removed from it. But can you imagine what it would be like to receive a letter from Jesus about the congregation you love, where you're a member, where you've invested your life, your heart, soul, your family has been brought up in this place, and you feel like there's life there. But then Jesus says, no, there's death in this camp. There's death in this camp. Why? Why is this church considered to be a dead church? But before I answer that question, I want to give you some perspective on the way some modern, some modern thinkers uh, deal with churches alive or dead. For example, in an article by Thomas Rayner called Autopsy of a Deceased Church, this is what he says, as he did an evaluation of several congregations within Baptist denominations, and he came up with 11 things that he learned about a deceased church. Now, I'm going to clip through these quickly and not read the article, but I just want you to listen to what he says characterizes a dead church or a deceased church. He says, the church refused to look like the community. The church had no community-focused ministries. Members became more focused on memorials of the past, not ministries of the future. The percentage of the budget for members' needs kept increasing. There were no evangelistic emphases. The members had more and more arguments about what they wanted. With few exceptions, pastoral tenure grew shorter and shorter. The church rarely prayed together. The church had no clear vision, mission, or purpose as to why it existed. The members idolized another era, and the facilities continued to deteriorate. And based on these things, he determined that he was dealing with a deceased church, a dead church. Now, I'm sure that some of what he says here is right and good and justifiable, but I want to point out to you that he's not assessing the life or death of this church in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, in light of the gospel of grace, in light of the word and prayer and sacraments. He's assessing the life or death of a congregation on the basis of what he and others within his circle imagine a living church to be and to do. In contrast to that, Carl Truman wrote an article called Seven Marks of a Healthy Church. Truman was not trying to argue with Rayner. These are two distinct articles. I want to be clear about that. But it just so happens that they stand in stark contrast to each other. Carl Truman is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, pastor of an OPC church, and so he approaches the life or death of a church in a different way. This is what he says in an article on seven marks of a healthy church, and this will resonate with many of us. He says, quote, Standard Reformed approaches tend to offer three marks. 
word truly preached, sacraments properly administered, and church discipline correctly applied. There was always some flexibility within the Reformed tradition on these points. Calvin argued for only two explicit marks, word and sacrament, while the Westminster Assembly put worship in the place of discipline. Luther, however, offered seven. The word, baptism, Eucharist, the keys exercised publicly, that means ministry of word and sacraments, ordained ministry, prayer, public praise, and thanksgiving to God, and number seven, the possession of the sacred cross. For Luther, as for Paul, the church reflects the cross, power made perfect in weakness. And like the cross, the church thus reveals those who are being saved, they who understand her weakness, and those who are perishing, they who despise her because of her weakness. Do you hear the difference in the two, whether a church is alive or dead? Some would have you believe that a church is alive based upon its programs and, and personnel. Others would have you know that a church is alive or dead based on what God reveals in His Word. Where the Word of God is rightly preached, where the sacraments are rightly administered, where discipline is rightly practiced, where the church is on mission to save the world, there you have the church of Jesus Christ. And it matters not whether you have a building filled with people or a building half full of people or barely full of people at all. The life or death of a church is not determined by the number of people gathering around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You notice that Jesus doesn't tell us how many members were in the church at Sardis. But He makes it clear that the majority of them were dead and only a minority of them were still alive. Sometimes in our imaginations we bring back, map back onto the Word of God our own experiences. And we imagine that Sardis might have been a church like ours, maybe our size. Maybe it was larger. Maybe it was like a mega church. Or maybe it was just a tiny little congregation, an outpost, a mission outpost of the gospel in that community. We don't know. But do you see that Jesus loved that church enough to tell her the truth? He loved that church enough to not abandon her or give up on her or reject her. Now why do I say that? I say it to encourage you because Jesus is writing a letter to a church and nowhere in any of these letters does He say size matters. Nowhere in any of these churches does He make a church feel bad for being small or feel great for being large. He doesn't do that. But what we see in all these churches is Jesus cared deeply about them. I've heard people say through the years, you hear a lot of things when you're a minister about your own church and about other people's churches. And I've heard a lot of things through the years. Reasons people give for why they stay or go or move around from church to church. And I've heard people say, oh, I've left this congregation because they're just dead. There's no life there. They're dead. Can't stand to be around death. And so they want to move on. 
Can I say something to you clearly? You see it in the story, don't you, in this text in Revelation 3? That even a dead church is a true church. Jesus wrote this letter to His church. People for whom He died. Those are His people. Why does it matter to us how many are there? Why do we care about those things so much? When what we should care about is those are the people of God. They are the people for whom Jesus laid down His life. And He is not giving up on them. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are, whatever congregation you attend, don't ever give up on those people until Jesus does. Because He's not giving up on you either. We're too quick to abandon the things that Jesus loves. And this church was purchased with His blood. And that's why He writes to them. I mean, it's not that He's writing out of anger and frustration. He is deeply concerned about the church in Sardis. How do we know He's concerned? Because He doesn't just end with confronting the church and their sin. He goes on to counsel this church. Look at verses 2 and 3. He counsels this church. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember then what you received and heard and keep it and repent. Wake up. You have the image of a church that's in danger. Threats all around. They're not aware of it. Jesus comes to them to shake them, to bring life back into them, to make them aware of the risk and of the dangers that are taking place. Strengthen what, is remain, what remains and is about to die. This is how you show you love someone. This is how Jesus showed He loves the church. He wants them to stoke the coals of their faith. He wants them to fuel the fire of their faith. He wants them to breathe new life into their faith again. Remember who is receiving this message, this vision. Jesus reveals it to the angel of the church in Sardis. But who is writing these things down? John is. I wonder if as John is writing these words, if he paused, maybe skipped a line, maybe wanted to think about it as he remembered a time when he and the other disciples did not stay awake in the garden and pray with Jesus, even though Jesus said, stay awake, pray with me. And yet John found himself slumbering. His eyes were heavy. He could not stay awake. He would not stay awake. And even after several attempts of Jesus waking them up, what happens in the story? Jesus finally comes to them and says, Wake up. It's time. My betrayer is here. I wonder if in this moment John had a flashback to the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows what it's like to be loved by Jesus so much that Jesus would wake you up in a time of danger and bring you out of darkness and into light. You know what else is happening in this story is we're hearing this language of wake up and stay alert, but this isn't just about sleeping. This is deeper. This is resurrection language throughout the, the letter here. They're not just asleep, but they are dead. They don't need just to wake up. They don't need caffeine. They need life in Christ. 
In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel saw a vision of the whole house of Israel. He looked into a valley uh, and he saw dry bones. The whole house of Israel had died and they'd been dead so long they had turned to, to bones. And he is sent down into that valley and God asked him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. And then he is commanded to preach to the bones and to prophesy to the Spirit. And so Ezekiel begins to preach to the bones and pray that the Spirit will come and bring life into them. And what does he see and what does he hear? He's preaching in a graveyard and he sees God raise the dead before his eyes in this vision. I suggest to you that Jesus is the true and better Ezekiel the prophet who comes to his church and says, wake up and live. And how does he wake them up? And how do they live? By the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life but those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Father has granted Jesus the authority, the right, the power to speak to the church at Sardis about their death but He's also granted the authority to call them back to life. Wake up, O oh dead man. Wake up, O oh dead church, and live again. All of this reminds us of another story in John 11. You hear the echoes of the language between John 11 and Revelation 3 where Jesus says to His disciples concerning their friend Lazarus, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus had spoken of his death, and they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Lazarus' sisters meet them on the way. They go out and rebuke Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he shall live again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And when he had said these things, he went out to the tomb. They opened it up and he called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Now why do I tell you that story when we're talking about the church in Sardis? Because I want you to see that just because a church is asleep, in a grave, wrapped up in clothes, maybe been dead a long time and there's a bad odor, 
Jesus has the power to raise it from the dead. You might feel like your life or your family, your congregation, you might feel like there's a kind of death creeping in to those places. But what does the gospel tell you? The gospel tells you that, the, that Jesus is the Lord and giver of life. He is the resurrection and the life. And when He comes to His church and calls us out for our sleepiness, calls us out for death, calls us out for our incomplete works, that's not a time for us to cash it all in and quit and say, fine, we're done. It's a time for us to say, we are dead. We agree with you. Make us alive. And Jesus can do so. Remember what you have received and what you have heard and keep it. What are those things? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the things you are to hang on to. What are we to repent of? We're to repent of our forgetfulness. We're to forget, uh, repent of our sloth, our drudgery. We're to repent of our, uh, of our inability to finish tasks. We're to repent of all of those things, to turn back and complete the things that God has called us to do. Jesus says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this is a terrifying image. If you're familiar at all with the imagery of the Bible, at one point Jesus talks about thieves and, say, and He says that thieves come only to steal and kill and destroy, but He has come that we might have life and we might have it to the full. We might have abundant life. And yet here He uses the image of a thief to describe Himself. The apostles do the same kind of thing when they describe Jesus. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, as Paul is trying to stir the church at Thessalonica to wake up, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The Apostle Peter uses that imagery as well in describing the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Then he goes on to say, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? God. And then Jesus describes his coming once again as a thief in Revelation 16:15 when he says, "Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And the language there for seen exposed is actually be ashamed. Thieves come to take away something that belongs to you. It could be an object. It could be security. It could be whatever. But Jesus says when He comes as a thief, He's not just coming to sneak up and surprise you. He's coming to take something from you that is precious to you if you will not wake up, He says. He doesn't say what, the, what Jesus will take away from the church if, if she is asleep and dead when He comes. 
But we can't imagine Him taking away something like her comfort and her peace, her coverings, her protection, and leaving her utterly exposed and ruined. This is a strong warning to the church at Sardis for any sleeping church, for any dead church as Jesus describes her. And just so you know that all was not lost at Sardis, boy, it sounds like it's a pretty rotten place, doesn't it? But just so you know that it wasn't all lost, Jesus is able to judge fairly and He discerns and distinguishes between people. And so in verse 4, He commends the church, or at least part of the church, in this way. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. You catch that? A few names... Many of the members of the church in Sardis are dead. So many are dead, the church can be characterized as a dead church by Jesus. And yet he sees within that community of his people that some of those members are still alive. How do we know they're still alive? Is it because they're so active and busy and they're doing all kinds of things and kicking up sand and dust? No. He knows they're still alive because they are in pursuit of holiness. They're not soiling their garments. They're not doing bad works. They are doing good deeds. And that's how He knows they're alive. Good deeds as defined by the Word of God. Those are the things they're doing. And Jesus says, I see life there. So you could say the church in Sardis is dead, but it's maybe you might say it's mostly dead. There's still life in this church. And here's the comfort Jesus gives them in verses 5 and 6. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here at the end of the letter, you hear the word name, 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 over and over again. You have a name, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Jesus knows the truth that there are names within the congregation who are still alive. And the names of those who overcome this death, who overcome their sleepiness, will be clothed in white garments. Their name will never be blotted out of the book of life. To be clothed in this context, the idea is to be wrapped and arrayed in a glorious garment. It's not just any clothes, but these are the royal garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the vision in Revelation 1, He appears to John as one who is arrayed in white. Those who overcome death and live with Christ will be arrayed in the garments of Christ. They will be dressed as Christ Himself is dressed and clothed in these white robes. And we've already seen throughout Revelation that those people who are dressed in white robes are those who overcome the world and the flesh and the devil by faith in Jesus Christ, by His Word and blood. Those who were slaughtered by the dragon and martyred for their faith are clothed in white. Those who were praying under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, are given white robes? 
Those who praise God around the throne are dressed in white. Those who stand with the Lamb on the mountain of God and worship God are clothed in white. And those who consecrate themselves to God and remain undefiled by the world are clothed in white robes. And those who are dressed as a bride preparing for the wedding feast are clothed in white. And those who ride into battle behind the rider on the white horse are clothed in white. They identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and with Christ alone. He will not blot their names out of the book of life. They are written there permanently. And I love the image of Jesus confessing the names of these overcomers before the Father and before the angels. What does that mean? It means He is acknowledging that their names are in this book. He is recognizing them for overcoming, for pursuing righteousness, for doing good works, for remaining alive even while others around them died. The book of life contains all the names of all the sinners that Jesus Christ came into the world to save, to ransom and redeem with His blood. And it is their names and only their names who are in this book of life. As Craig Kester says, many readers find it unnerving to find John speaking about God writing people's names in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who take John seriously naturally want to know, is my name included in God's book? And Revelation does not list the names that are in the book of life. But it does give readers enough information to know that the comments about the book of life are designed to encourage faithfulness, not despair. John's counsel can be summarized in this way. Trust that the Lamb who died to liberate people from every tribe and language and people and nation for life with God also died for you. Trust that God wants you to put this faith into practice. And then leave the matters concerning the final judgment in God's hands. If you do what Jesus calls you to do, by grace through faith in Christ, He will acknowledge you in the presence of God and His angels. He will read your name from the book of life, and no one, except for maybe you, will be surprised that your name was there. So do you see how Jesus, the Good Shepherd, loved His church in Sardis? A dead church, but He didn't give up on her. He calls her back to life by the power of the Gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And He will do the same for us and for our sister congregations throughout the world who are struggling to live, struggling to hang on to life, he is there with us to the end of the ages.